Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome back to the Big Deal podcast, where Treaders and Dion continue their insightful and entertaining conversation with one of the greats of Australian cricket, Greg Chappell. By now, you should know Greg well as a former Australian captain. He coached India and South Australia. He was a national selector and he's played a prominent role as a commentator. In part two of our interview, you get more of Greg's great stories, along with his lessons learned from sponsorships and other ventures, the trials and tribulations of coaching in India, his views on the impact of money in cricket, and much more. Now, let's get into it. Your career is amazing, 7,000 plus runs, 24 tonnes, World Series, but at some stage, there was a massive challenge for you, seven ducks in a row. How did you deal with that, and did you have, was it just to get through it with technique, or was there a mentor, is anyone that you know, really helped you through a tough spot because every athlete faces a tough spot and that's as tough a spot as you'll face on a cricket field. Yeah, I'd been pretty lucky up to that point. I'd had a few lean spells, but, you know, they they didn't last for, for long. I mean, interestingly enough, because we were playing so much cricket, it wasn't that long a time. You know, it was only a few few weeks. It felt felt like a few years uh, on the, on the receiving end of it. But um, look, it, it's a longish story, but it had nothing to do with cricket. And you know, a lot of people because this was twelve months after the you know underarm incident. So we were playing the West Indies, who were a very very good side. Um, you know, I was the key batsman, so they were the one that I you know, I was the one they wanted to get out. So they Doubled, doubled their efforts, um, but you know we we were at a stage where we had a we had three young kids by this stage. So Judy's at home in Brisbane on her own, no family around for support, and she was struggling, you know, to, to deal with three three young kids and with me being away for months on end. And you know it was pretty difficult. I mean, you're a sportsman, you you know the the, the feeling. I was looking forward to the summer because I love my cricket and I love playing at, at that level. So it was really difficult because I knew Judy wasn't looking forward to it. And, you know, she was dreading the fact that I was going to be away. And so there was a little bit of, you know, tension around the, the start of the, the season. I started the season okay. Um, Double hundred. But, the, yeah, I think um, got, a, got a few runs early on. But, you know, ringing home every night, and again, no mobile phones, so you're ringing from a hotel room or whatever and, you know, so you're ringing around dinner time with three young kids, and it. To be fair, Judy was having a, a real struggle, and um, and every reason why she would have been. So I'm trying, you know, to to be as helpful as I can from a distance on the phone, which is about as useless as, whatever you can think of. Mm. Um, and I wasn't that useful when I was there, let alone on the end of a phone. So um, it, it was a real challenge. So. I had this going on on one side and you know, the cricket on the other side. Now, up until that point, I had been able to separate the two quite easily. And we hadn't had three kids you know, 
up until quite recently. So um, it, it hadn't been quite the, the, you know, the same situation. But I'd been able to compartmentalise my life from my cricket. And no matter what was happening around me off the cricket field, once I walked onto the cricket field, I could leave that behind. And I would get into my cocoon and there'd be no problem. And then I'd deal with whatever it was. I mean, I, you know, I was playing a test match in Adelaide um, in uh, January 1974 when our home was flooded in Brisbane. Mm. You know, the 74 floods in Brisbane. And I'm, I'm not out in and I am not out at lunchtime. And the chairman of Queensland Cricket at the time was down for the Adelaide Test match. And he walks in, which was rare. He, you know, they, they didn't walk into the dressing room that often. And I'm sitting at the table in the, in the dressing room having my lunch. And um, Norm walks into the dressing room and said, oh, Greg, I've got some bad news for you. Your house has been flooded. And I said, well, that's terrific, Norm. Has anyone been hurt? No. I knew Judy was in Sydney, so that wasn't wasn't an issue. I said, has anyone been hurt? And she, he said, no. And I said, well, why couldn't you have kept the news until the end of the day? I'm, there's nothing I can do about it now. I'm batting in the test match. Thanks very much for the news, but no thanks. Yeah. You know? So, um, but yeah, once he walked out the room, that was the end of it. I went back and I, I made runs that day and, you know, dealt with the problem later in the in the day so I could do that and I could manage my on and off field stuff pretty easily with my my routines the, you know the process that I went through that helped me make runs um, was could shut out the rest of the world but at that time I I couldn't shut it out and I took that with me every time I went out in the middle and I remember I, I got out um I got out did every every ground I, I played on, but I think it was a Sydney cricket ground. I got out first ball. And I walked off the ground and I was looking at the background because I thought I didn't see that ball. And I mean that never happened to me because mm. you know, my focus at the point of release was the bowler's hand and the ball in it. That was it. And so I had that feeling a couple of times. I walked off the MCG and I thought, you know, I didn't see it. And and the, the media thought I was taking the piss when, you know, they asked me and you know, I knew a lot of these guys. Um, they said, why are you batting so bad? The first question was, why are you batting so badly? And I said, actually, I'm not batting that badly. I'm just getting out. Um, which was true because in the nets I was good as gold. And then I was walking out and getting out. So... It was a perfectly honest answer to a straightforward question. But the bloke got the hump because he thought I was taking the piss. And someone else said to me, well, when can we expect you to make runs? And I said, look, I can tell you there's, there's a big score just around the corner. What I can't tell you is how long the bloody street is. <laughs> so, you know, I knew I was batting well, but I got in and, you know, this was probably the first time you know, as a mature player, that I got to the point where all of a sudden you get into this spiral of getting out and then you start worrying about getting out. I'd never worried about getting out. I only thought about making runs. Sometimes you got out. But all in the middle of this thing, it was the first time I'd never been, I never thought about technique. I only ever thought about where's the ball and where am I scoring my runs? And just respond to what came and the, the technique was whatever happened. Now, 
as as luck would have it, I was long and lean and you know looked reasonably graceful, and the technique obviously wasn't that bad. But technique is an outcome of you know what you're thinking about, your personality, and all of those things. And so I you know I never thought about it, but in the middle of this thing, I started to think about what about my grip, what about my stance, and I got myself in in you know into that sort of spiral where you all of a sudden doubt takes over, and you're going out to bat worrying about not getting out rather than scoring runs and that doesn't work and so it was just compounding itself and it wasn't until two things um, um, I, I, we were playing in Sydney and I asked I'd, I'd got out I think and so I'd, you know, I would finish batting I just said to Dennis Lee I said mate you've probably bowled against me more than anyone else would you come and bowl to me in the nets and just have a look and see what you can see because, you know, we didn't have coaches in the day, but, you know, we coached ourselves. Mm. You know, we helped each other and and you, you relied on your mates for any information. So Dennis was as close as, you know, anyone to me and as, had bowled to me and knew how to get me out and knew how, you know, I tried not to get out. So he came and bowled to me for about an hour. And he said, mate, there's no point bowling anymore. There's nothing wrong. So that was the first, you know, um, positive, you know, bit of confidence building that I got and then we went down to Adelaide to play in Adelaide and our neighbours from across the road in Brisbane said that you know and they they knew us quite well and knew that Judy had been struggling she said why don't you leave the kids with me and go down to Adelaide for the weekend and that was you know that was a huge boost and um and then probably the third thing you know we were playing in in Melbourne in between those two points and I had another failure and the old days in the dressing room in Melbourne were, you know, they were downstairs. You had the viewing room upstairs. So I got out and I went downstairs. There was no one else in the, the room. I quietly took my pads off, put the bat in the, in, the, in the bag and I sat down on the bench there and I'm thinking, what the hell's going on? And Rudy Webster, Rudy was a West Indian um, who had lived in Melbourne. He'd been the manager of the West Indian team during World Series cricket. And I knew Rudy well. He'd been a first-class cricketer himself. Rudy had uh, worked with some AFL teams, Richmond and Essendon, as a sports psychologist. He'd study. He was a doctor, but he studied sports psychology as well, and he'd worked in that role with a couple of AFL teams. So, pretty smart fellow. Anyway, he came into the dressing room, and it, it was strange because he never came into our dressing room. Not that he was working with the West Indies at the time, but he came down. He said, "Greg, I don't want to add to your problems, but are you watching the ball?" And I said something like, Rudy, what do you think I'm watching? He said, no, no, no. He said, I don't want to add any more to your problems, but are you really watching the ball? And that was like, you know, like you usually do because he, you know, he and I had had a lot of conversations about batting and concentration. And, and that was one of the days I'd walked off the ground thinking I didn't see the ball. And he said, no, no, no. He said, not now, not, not while you're hot under the collar. Just tonight when you go home, just have a bit of a think about it. And he was exactly right. You know, I realised that I'd been so worried about what was going on with me. My concentration, my focus was down this end. So I wasn't seeing the ball leave the hand. And, you know, you're picking up halfway down. Well, good luck. All over. And, you know, the beauty of it, well, I don't know whether it's a beauty, but, you know, as I said to the journalist that day, I mean, I, I wasn't seeing the ball and I was still managing to hit it. So um, <laughs> something was working okay. I, was, I wasn't that far off. <laughs> 
But anyway, when Judy came down to, to Adelaide, I got 60-odd against the West Indies that day and that sort of broke the, you know, the, the run. But it also, I had my hand broken that day. Um, Colin Croft hit me with a short ball um, on the, you know, the left hand and I knew straight away that it was, was broken and I think I was about 11 not out. You know, I had made about 11 runs when he hit me and I got another 50 runs batting with a with a broken hand but I couldn't couldn't bat I batted number 11 I think in the second innings because uh, the hand was no good but um, that was the the turning point we went to New Zealand from there and I got 100 in the first one day game on the tour of New Zealand so it solved two problems in in um, in one innings because uh, it got me out of the the rut of, of not many runs and you know I had faced a barrage when I came in to bat in that game Someone had put a pig out on the ground and that had gone running across the ground in front of me. The, um, someone had, had a bowling ball and they, they rolled that out on the ground that sort of rolled across in front of me as I walked out to bat. So I had a bit of motivation to make some runs and you know, I got 100, as I say, in, in that innings and got a standing ovation when I, when I left. So the, the New Zealanders had been sort of quietened down and subdued a little bit um, after that as well. So as I say, killed two birds with one stone. Did you utilise your commercial opportunities outside of cricket or also inside of cricket while you were playing and as Australian captain? Um, you know, I can remember as a kid, I wanted a grain nickel scoop. You were, you know, you had your own bat, um, you had your own cricket centre where I bought some gear from back in the day. Uh, I know you've coached and you've still done with your, uh, involved with your old um, college, um, Prince Alfred College here in Adelaide. Did you make the most of those opportunities or...? Probably not, uh, but there weren't that many opportunities, so I, I probably possibly did. I mean, as you say, there was the Greg Chapel Cricket Centre, which um, a friend of mine, Bill Buckle, um, started. Bill was an accountant. Um, the, the, the Cricket Centre had been an indoor training centre for a number of years, and it sort of, it was before its time, and it, it hadn't quite worked. And Bill came in and, and took over the business, and Closed down a couple of the uh, the indoor nets. I think there were about six originally, and so it was down to three or four. And he put some um, retail cricket uh, stuff in in the centre, and it started to work a bit a bit better. So he approached me about getting involved, and so you know, back in the early seventies, uh, I'd gone to Brisbane in in seventy three, and the timing was pretty good. Um, Brisbane was just sort of coming into its own. It had been a big country town up to that point, but um, you know it was, you know, Joe Bielke Peterson was the the premier, and um, 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 the Lord Mayor of the time um, was uh, was a real cricket um, nut as well. So Clem Jones was the Lord Mayor, and you know he was a um, a Labor Lord Mayor, and you had a country party um, premier in. Uh, in Queensland at the time, but you know they sort of put Queensland on on the map. So it was good timing from that that point of view. Um, you know, I was a big fish in a little um, little pond. Having you know, I went to I went to Queensland for the the captaincy. Really, Ian was captain of South Australia and captain of Australia at the time, and I knew he would be captain of Australia until you know, and captain of South Australia until he finished being captain of Australia. So. The opportunities to get any captaincy experience was zero here. Um, Queensland offered me a, a, a contract and John McLean, who was the, the current Queensland 
captain, uh, you know, he, he rang me. I knew him well. Uh, John said, look, if you, if you do decide to come, he said, I'm happy to step down. I'd like you to be captain. So that was the turning point, really. I wasn't that interested in going from any, from any other point of view. And in fact, I, I told them I didn't want a contract the first year. I wanted to have a look at them and they, you know, you have a look at me and we'll see whether we like each other. And so I didn't sign a contract till the following year. Uh, I didn't have a manager, but I had a mate, um, you know, who I became a business partner with for years and, and Barry um, sort of acted as the de facto um, manager during my, my time. But the Cricket Centre, um, you know, I was contracted by um, Gray Nichols to, to use their bats throughout my career. But you can imagine that if we were getting $2,000 a test match, the bat contracts weren't weren't that great. I think my last contract with, with Gray Nichols, and it was only, you know, only the last year or two, I think my last contract with Gray Nichols was $10,000 to, to use their bats. So you weren't making a fortune um, from endorsing cricket bats. And as I said to, you know, Gray Nichols at the time, and I said to, to others, you know, to, to, to players who asked me, I said, look, all I want is the best cricket bat. I'll make my money from making runs, not from endorsing cricket bats. So, um, you know, the, the business opportunities that came along um, and as I mentioned, you know, earlier, you know, I had a couple of great business partners. Um, Barry Miranda was, was one of them. Barry Martin was another one. Uh, they, you know, we were in the insurance and the finance industry for most of my cricket career from the time I went to Brisbane. Um, you know, they looked after the shop while I was away um, and even... Yeah, when I retired, I remember when Ian retired, I said to him, oh, mate, and Ian was in his 20s when he retired the first time. I said, mate, you know, you still got plenty of cricket left in you. And he said, mate, you, you will know. You won't need anyone to tell you. When the day comes, you'll know. And I was in the middle of a, a series against uh, Pakistan. In fact, I'd just run myself out in Adelaide, hit the ball straight to mid-off and ran. <laughs> Direct hit, I was run out. Um... And I knew that day that that was it. Um, you know, I was done. I, um, Kim Hughes was captain by that stage. I was batting number six that season. And, uh, you know, I knew it was my last season. I wanted to play one more as a player, not as captain. But I was struggling to, you know, summon up the, the mental energy. And so when I got to Sydney, I knew that that was my last test match. But I had to, I couldn't, uh, um, Dion mentioned earlier that um, I'd, Past Sir Donald's mark of uh, runs, um, 6,996, I think his total was. I was about 50 runs short of that, 60 runs short of that um, going into the Sydney Test match. I didn't want to get 50 and think that, oh, maybe I'll play one more test next year. And, you know, I thought, rule a line under it. That'll give me the motivation to do what I've got to do. I told Phil Ridings, who was the chairman of selectors, on the morning of that test match that, um, Phil, this will be my last test match. I didn't tell anyone else. Uh, I'd, told, I'd told Judy that she was the only one that, that knew. Um, and I knew that that would, you know, and I went to Kim and I said, mate, I, I did tell Kim. I, I, um, for two reasons. He was captain. I needed to tell him. But also I said, mate, as it's my last test match, do you mind if I bat number four again? Because I'm struggling at number six, I'm you know, just waiting so long. Be nice just to, you know, to go out in in the, the position that I'm most used to. And he said, "No, mate, you bat wherever you want to bat. That's fine. I'm happy with that." 
And when I went out to bat, uh, Abdul Kadir was bowling. It was just before lunch. We might have had 20 minutes before lunch on a Sydney wicket that was turning a bit. And I knew it was a danger period because you can't get any runs, but you can get out in 20 minutes. And um, I just knew I had to get through to lunch. If I could get through to lunch, I would then have a, a two-hour session to just think about making runs. So I, I trod on them. I fell on them. I kicked them away. I did anything to get through to lunch. And then after lunch, I came out and I knew I could just get back into that cocoon and um, I, I'd be okay. And, and it was such a wicket. There was, it was spinning already on day two. Um, I knew that if, if we got a good enough score in the first innings, we wouldn't have to bat the second time because batting second would be on, you know, the second time in the fourth innings would be a nightmare. So that I had all those motivations, finish on a high note, you know, I sort of, um, I did it for my grandfather. Um, I thought, you know, it would be ironic to go past um, Bradman in the, in the last innings. It, it wasn't it wasn't beating his record as far as I was concerned because I'd played, you know, I'd batted twice as many times as he had. Uh, but it was just getting past that mark and being the first one to make 7,000 runs for Australia in Test cricket because my grandfather and, and uh, Sir Donald had never really been great mates and... Um, so there was sort of a little bit of a family thing there that um, just so I thought, I'll do this one for Vic, um, make sure I get past. And once I got the 100, or once I got the 60-odd, I knew I needed to get 100. And if we could get a big enough score, we wouldn't bat again. So uh, we did, and we didn't have to bat again. So I was able to bookend my career with the 100 in the first innings and 100 in the last innings, which had never been done before. So it was a, it was a nice way to rule a line under it. And, um, you know, I was making more money at work than I was on the cricket field, so retiring wasn't that big a deal. Incredible test match it was too with uh, with Rod and, and Dennis going out as well. Um, Greg, um, so many players, so many great athletes have trouble transitioning when their playing days finish into what they want to do next. And you just said you were you're making more money uh, off the field than on. You you ended up, um, I think, in the commentary box with nine for a while. And then a little bit later, you did some coaching, ended up at the Redbacks. How did you know? When did you know what you wanted to do next and, and, and how you got there? Well, there wasn't much of a transition really that was the beauty of the era that we, we might have got paid much and but we had to have a job so once you finished you just went back to work I mean I was I would walk off the cricket field even you know if we played a shield game or a test match in uh, in Brisbane if it finished early I was in the office that afternoon generally but certainly the next morning and if I came back you know six and a half month tour of England you know my partners had been carrying the business for the, the time that I'd been away I would come home and the next day I'd be in the office. Um, it wasn't then, you know, take three weeks holiday. I'd, I didn't have a holiday. Um, you know, some would say that playing cricket for Australia was a bit of a holiday and it was. Um, but, you know, in the sense of having a family holiday and things like that, I mean, the family got the, the raw end of the prawn every time because I'd been away for six months. I'd come home, drop the bags, here's the washing and I'd go off to work. Um, so the transition didn't, you know, wasn't that difficult because it was just um, the only thing that changed was I stopped going to cricket. The um, that that wasn't, and I'd never thought about coaching. I'd, um, uh, you know, I, I worked, you know, business was um, what I did other than than playing cricket. So I continued the business, um, uh, you know, for about another eight or nine years, uh, and we sold sold the business early in the nineties. Um, we got an approach. Um, 
to sell the business and we accepted that. Um, we had another business that we were running on uh, alongside it anyway. But yeah, that wasn't that was more of an investment um, uh, business, so we it didn't require a lot of day-to-day stuff from me. So after um, you know a few months, I, I had another business involvement in in Sydney that I was travelling to. I was commuting, going to Sydney for a couple of days a week to um, to deal with that. Coming back to Brisbane in the spare time, and Judy had never really enjoyed the humidity in Brisbane, so. Um, one day she said to me, what are we doing in Brisbane? And I said, what do you mean? We live here. She said, no, no, but you don't, you don't have a business here anymore. I mean, uh, why are we living here? I said, well, where do you want to go? And she said, I want to go somewhere cooler. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, so where's that? And she said, Canberra. And I said, really? She had a sister who'd lived in Canberra for 20 years and the girls hadn't lived in the same place for 20 years and as luck would have it, our eldest son went into the air force, and he 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 went to the um, uh, to add for the um, defence force academy in um, in Canberra. So I thought, oh well, I mean, he's there for the next three years. At least we'll see him from time to time. Uh, I can drive to Sydney for you know the couple of days a week I had to go to Sydney for for work, so I can commute from there in the car. At least have the car when I get there. So yeah, okay, that's that's all right. So we, we moved to Canberra and within about three months, my business partner in Sydney, who was a lawyer, said to me, Greg, I'm sorry, but I can't run this business anymore. Um, too much work uh, in the uh, uh, as a solicitor. You'll have to come and run the business. So all of a sudden, I had to be in Sydney five days a week and um, it wasn't quite such a good deal um, leaving Canberra on a Monday morning and coming back on a Friday afternoon or Sunday night. Sometimes I left to go to, to, to uh, Sydney for... Um, for work, so we um, we sold that business about uh, six, oh no, four, four and a bit years later. And so I'd been sort of semi-retired for a couple of years in in Canberra when I got an approach to uh, come back to Adelaide and, and coach the the Redbacks. And um, my first response, my initial thought was, no, I don't really want to do that. I I got a phone call from one of the, the board members from the SACA on a Sunday. Um, I was actually in Adelaide on on business at the at the time, um, and he said to me, uh, "I need to have a talk to you. When are you likely to be in Adelaide?" And I said, "Well, as luck would have it, I'm here now. If you want to meet me at the British Hotel at four o'clock, we can have a meeting then." And so two of them turned up at the British and um, put this proposal to me to come back to Adelaide. And I said, "Look, I'll need some time to think about it, uh, and I need to talk to my wife about it." Look. Um, let me think about it and I'll get back to you on Wednesday. Because my, if I'd given them a response on the spot, it would have been no. So I went back to um, to Canberra on Tuesday night. Judy said to me, have you given any more thought? And I said, no, not really. I, you know, I'll just ring them tomorrow and say no. And she said, well, you promised them you'd think about it. Um, you, you probably should think about it. So, okay, um, do what the boss tells you. So we <laughs> sat down at the kitchen table and we got the full scap pad out and I wrote down a list of pros and cons, and there weren't too many cons, to be honest. So it was Judy's fault, really, um, <laughs> because if I'd been left to my own devices, um, I probably would have said no. And uh, But, you know, I started to get a bit excited about it once I wrote down on paper what, you know, what it had going for it. The only disappointing thing for me, I suppose, is that my, my father had passed away, our father had passed away in, you know, a few, quite a few years earlier. Right, In fact, within a few months of my test career finishing, he... 
uh, had a couple of heart attacks and, and passed away. But um, you know, I would love to have talked to him about coaching because he'd coached us and he'd got a lot of things right and he couldn't have got them all right by accident. And you know, so he obviously understood quite a bit. I would love to have had the opportunity to talk to him about, about coaching. But um, for someone who'd never really thought about coaching, I really enjoyed the 20 years that I had from that point on um, involved with coaching or selecting and coaching coaches and mentoring mentoring people working with the, with young cricketers with cricket australia through our youth programs um, it was a very uh, outside of playing the game it was probably the the most enjoyable thing i did outside of playing cricket unbelievable now, i went on to coach india as well and we talk about india they now pretty much dictate the game don't know the money that's involved you know as a traditional cricket person how have you seen the evolution of the short format the t20 you know the 100 in england even the t10 which is starting to rear its head is it the necessary evil because it lines the pockets of cricket or what's your take on that? Yeah, well, I think, well, um, you know, 50, 50 over had been in for a few years. Kerry didn't invent 50 over cricket. But one day cricket really, you know, took off during World Series cricket, you know, playing under lights, coloured clothing, white ball, black side screens, all those things came in during World Series cricket. And I think it brought a new, oh, sorry, it, it brought a new cricket supporter to, um, to the game. People came to the one-day games. Women and young people flocked to the one-day game. And, you know, a lot of them stayed on and became supporters of Test cricket. And I think, you know, 20-over cricket has been a natural progression from, from that. Um, you know, people don't have the time, you know, during the 70s and 80s and even the 90s, you know, people could afford a bit of time to go to the, the cricket, um, go to the Test matches. But, you know, um, both husband and wife working, um, you know, the, the the increasing demands on families and and money and a um, lot more competition for the entertainment dollar all of that you know test cricket wasn't the draw card and I think the research you know was telling everyone that um, anyone over you know 40 years of age really weren't that interested in test cricket to be honest and so you know test cricket or cricket was going to run into a problem you know commercially if it if it didn't have something else to offer. And, I mean, cricket's a unique game. I mean, I, you, you might be able to tell me. I can't think of another sport where you've got three formats that work at the international level. I mean, it's uh, it, it's a unique game in that respect. Uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, even, you know, 100 balls, 10 overs can be a game of cricket and, and still be quite a spectacle, you know, can, can work. I mean, you know, that, that, you know, everyone's tried it. I mean, golf is trying it with six holes and all that sort of stuff. But it's not, it doesn't work. Um, you know, I think golf has got a, probably a better chance than most other, most other sports. I mean, and, you know, six hole format can work. And, um, you know, I think there are a few formats that are being tried that, you know, might be okay for golf. But anything else really doesn't work quite as well. Because the, the beauty with cricket was that they had a long format format that they could come back could bring down to a short format. Every other sport's got a short format. You know, it's already a two-hour, you know, window. Um, anything less than that doesn't really, you know, it's it's like a it's shootout in soccer. I mean, um, that's not going to work as, as a standalone. It might, you know, it sort of works at the end of a, of a real game. Um, then you have a shootout to get a, get a result. I mean, if the game was, you know, worked properly, um, there'd be more goals scored in the game itself and you wouldn't need the shootout. But yeah. 
Um, anyway, you know, everyone else has got a short format. They're coming off cricket had a long format that they could peg back. And so, um, you know, the, the shorter formats work okay. Look, if I'd been a player, I would have enjoyed 20-over cricket. I don't want to watch a lot of 20-over cricket. It's a little bit like fast food for me. Um, you know, it's okay occasionally, but you don't want it every night. Um, you know, as a player, test cricket was what I was judging myself on and what I would expect other people to judge me on. Because test cricket is, is the whole test. It tests every aspect of, of the game. As a batsman, it's not only my technique, it's my, um, my mental ability, you know, my mental skills, my emotional ability. I mean, you know, you talked before about the run of outs. I mean, to come back and to go out to bat again with some confidence after you haven't built any confidence is pretty challenging. And, you know, test cricket, you live or die as a batsman in test cricket by your ability to deal with failure. Because, you know, Bradman batted 80 times in test cricket and he only made 2,900s. So he failed 51 times. And so he, he failed nearly you know, twice as often as he, as he succeeded. The thing with Bradman was that when he, when he succeeded, he went and got a big score and, you know, sort of covered, gave himself, you know, some, some room for failure. You know, he, he failed as often as everyone else did. So it just shows you that, you know, getting runs is not that easy. In, in any given test match, one or two players make most of the runs. You know, there's probably 60% of the batsmen fail in every innings. So if you don't find a way to deal with failure, you can't succeed because it's very hard to go out and bat with confidence when you haven't got any. And to be able to convince yourself and to fool yourself that you've got confidence, even though you haven't, is what allows you to go and make runs. So, you know, test cricket to me was the ultimate challenge. Um, if I made runs, I couldn't tell you. I could hardly tell you an innings I played in 50 over cricket. Um, you know, it was they were runs for that contest, um, and they were important within that contest. But you know, they didn't get outside. Once they turned the lights off, that was the end of it. Whereas yeah. a test match, you know, I can remember quite a few innings I played in test matches because they went for a couple of days. You know, so you remember the battle that you went through. It was. It was, um, you know, your battle of wills against the bowlers' battle of wills. And people don't realise that, you know, test cricket particularly is a battle for a piece of turf not even as big as your front doormat. You know, that danger zone that's probably about a metre long and about, a, you know, a foot wide um, is what you're battling over. And if the bowler can dominate that, he's going to win the contest. As a batsman, my job is to get him away from that area. I don't want him bowling balls there because they're the ones most likely to get me out. 80% of wickets, 84% of wickets fall in that danger zone. I'm you know, just grateful that the bowlers didn't work out that that's where they had to bowl them all. But the thing was, I, dict I would dictate to him where he would bowl his next ball by the way I dealt with the last one. So if he came to my end of the danger zone, I had to make sure that I scored runs from it. If he dropped down to his end of the danger zone, I had to make sure I scored runs off it. And if he got a little bit wider, but I had to score runs off it. If I could score runs off his less than good balls, I could keep him away from that danger zone. And it was only the very best of bowlers that would come back to that danger zone. You know, if Andy Roberts came up and bowled one just slightly at my end of the danger zone and I hit it for four, he would come back you'd know he would come back and test you again and try and get it just a little bit shorter. 
but the average bowler, if you hit one of you know his best balls for four, you could almost guarantee he would overcorrect, and the next ball would be short. You know, Greg Ritchie, Greg Ritchie said to me one day, "Oh, it's all right for you. You get the script every day." He said, "The rest of us, we've got no idea what they're bowling." But that was pretty much, yeah, you know, he was right in the sense that. Some days you knew what was coming next because of what you'd done with the previous ball and, you know, the standard of the bowler who was bowling it. You know, Dennis Lilly would always come back to that danger zone. You know, Andy Roberts, you know, Malcolm Marshall, John Snow, the quality bowlers would keep challenging you in that area and they were the hardest blokes to, to score against because they wouldn't bowl you rank bad balls. So the, the real test was, was test cricket. I loved one-day cricket because I got to bowl more. Um, I'm not sure I would have loved 20 over cricket. Mind you, I mean, I could still probably bowl my four overs in 20 over cricket in three spells. You know, they, you generally bowl, you know, maximum you're going to bowl is two two overs in a row. So I reckon I could get one over out um, pretty well. Um, go the journey pretty often, I reckon. But um, no, as a player, I would have enjoyed it. But, I, you know, it's not something that I sort of salivate over. Oh, you beauty, the big bash is on tonight. I mean, right, so... It's almost overkill as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, an international, you know, World Cup of 20 over cricket. Yes, I'm, I'm keen. I'll, I'll have a look at that and um, be. Yeah, and I love the tactics that have, you know, that have been developed. You know, the bowlers have got better and better in, um, you know, in 20 over cricket because they've had to because, you know, 10 overs a good night, but, um, you know, 10 and over in the day, you, you'd have, you wouldn't have played next week. What about India, Greg? Um, how dangerous do you think um, to the game is the money and the power that the Indian board wields over the rest of the world? Particularly, you know, if, if, if the day comes when they lose interest in test cricket and it all becomes T20s, tournaments around the world, Indian franchises maybe owning teams in South Africa, West Indies, maybe even Australia and England. I mean, is that a threat, do you think? Oh, a huge threat. Yeah, I think it's... Um it's a worry, and but I don't know that too many people are, are worrying about it and those that should worry about it. I mean, you've got the big three of India, England and Australia. I think Test cricket will survive as long as I'm around uh, within those three countries, but no one else can afford it. You know, I know having worked in you know, with Cricket Australia in the area of development for many years, I know how much money we spent developing young, young cricketers. Not many countries can do that, and I'm not sure we can do that anymore. Mm. So, you know, it's a, it's a real, real challenge. You've got to find different ways of doing it. You know, the, the beauty of 20 over cricket is that anyone can be a, you know, the shorter the game, it, it gives more people an opportunity. Um, and so, like the West Indies still produce talented players. You know, I've seen their under-19 teams in recent years. There's a lot of talent there. But they send their test team here. It's their third eleven. Yeah. You know, they've got blokes playing all around the, the world in 20 over cricket because that's the only way they can make money. They play test cricket for the West Indies and they get $2,000 for the tour. You know, they, they get the, the, the sort of money that we, we got back in the day. Uh, they don't get big money. So no one, the only reason anyone plays test cricket for the West Indies is to get a reputation to get a contract to play in the 2020 competitions around the world. Uh, and it's the same for most other countries. I mean, I'm staggered that South Africa have stayed competitive for as long as, as they have because, you know, they're playing, you know, cricket playing populations, not that big. New Zealand, I mean, they, they've performed out of their, their socks. Um, totally. You know, what they achieve in, in any sport, 
anything is is amazing when you think of the size of the population. So, you know, England uh, they attract their um, they, they attract their cricketers from the um, well, what they call public schools, but the private sector. Um, you know, and, and we're getting we're getting to a similar stage where there's only a, a few cricket schools around around the country. So. You know, it's a huge problem, I think, for, for cricket. You know, we still get a staggering number of kids that come to us and want to play cricket. But we've got to find a different way to develop them. You know, we the traditional way of developing batsmen is just not working. It never has, to be honest. I mean, those that come through, come through despite the system. And that's why I was, you know, say our father was a very good coach. I mean, he got a 100% strike rate, three kids, and three of them played for Australia. It's, it's unheard of because, um, you know, I see the number of kids that come to our game that we bore them to death. Mm. We make batting too complicated and they go away. You know, we used to worry about, well, Cricket Australia used to worry about, you know, one or two or three kids a year that stopped playing cricket and, and you know, went, went off and, and got a contract playing AFL. I said, don't worry about it. I mean, one, two or three kids a year is nowhere near the problem, you know, we get thousands of kids that come to us that want to play the game and we frighten them off. We make the game too hard and they go away. I mean, we haven't lost a Ricky Ponding or a Steve Smith to the AFL. I'm sorry, but we haven't. But we might have lost a Ricky Ponding or a Steve Smith to the kids that came to our game that left because we made it too hard for them. And we'll never know whether we, we lost them. You know, we, we probably lost a, maybe a few blokes who could have bowled for Australia might have played first-class cricket that, that have gone off and played AFL. I mean, Alex Keith obviously could do could do either, but, you know, I, I'm not sure that Alex was a game-changer as a cricketer. Um, you know, I don't know that he would have necessarily been the next superstar. He, he certainly wasn't a Cameron Green. You know, if we lost a Cameron Green, it would be a tragedy. Um, but I don't know that there are many, many others. I mean, I played, I grew up playing cricket with guys. You know, we all played cricket and football. But we knew who the cricketers were and we knew who the footballers were. And I think the same thing. I mean, you know, Craig Bradley played a few Shield games. Uh, Barry Robran played a few Shield games back in the day. But they were footballers. You know, and, and they were just good enough athletes. And at the time, you could sort of fit in playing both both sports. But neither Robran nor Bradley had any great claims to, you know, to test cricket. Um, they weren't going to be the next superstar test cricketer they were just good athletes who could play the game pretty well and and deserved to play first class cricket but they probably weren't going any further even if they hadn't played afl football they wouldn't have gone any further what about the rise of you know the lucrative domestic cricketer now can earn a couple hundred thousand a year playing shield cricket and t20 is that a good thing that's a good thing good good thing for them yes um yeah I, i think it's great that there are more people that can make a living from from cricket but it's come at the cost of uh test cricket you know i think the fact that we were part time cricketers was um you know was good and bad um i don't think i would have been a better cricketer had i spent 7 days a week at it um i was i think you know it was a benefit to get away from cricket from time to time go to the office and be so busy you didn't think about cricket all day. Um, but I don't think you necessarily get better at something because you spend more time at it. Um, I think what we've done is, you know, we've made it possible for guys to make a living who would never, you know, and will never be international cricketers. Um, but what that's 
done is that it's put a barrier between the amateur cricketer and the professional cricketer. I mean, when I when I played, you know, when I started, when I when I left school and, and went to work, I worked with the, the Shell Oil Company. Um, I was three innings away, you know, when I was half a dozen innings away from playing for Australia, even though I wasn't playing for South Australia. You know, a couple of good innings in club cricket, I, you know, I could be playing for South Australia and a few good innings for South Australia, I could be playing for Australia. Now you're miles away. You're playing club cricket, you're not even close to playing for South Australia. If you haven't got a contract, you know, you've got a barrier to, to get through. And I think what, what's happening, you know, guys come out of underage cricket and they get a rookie contract with a, with a state uh, and they're miles away from playing for their state. You know, there's someone playing club cricket, you might be closer because if they, you know, an older guy, more experienced guy made 300s in club cricket and, and maybe had played a few shield games before, they're more likely to get picked than, than the kid on the, the rookie contract. And, you know, I've seen so many kids that have come out of underage cricket looking like they're half decent and they go into the, the system and they become a rookie and you see them 12 months later and you don't recognise them as a cricketer. They have changed everything that they did to be a good cricketer in, in youth cricket. Now, you know, you do change a lot as a player. You develop and, you know, you're forced by the game to change the way that you play. But I'm seeing kids who are change, changing the way they play because they've seen someone else doing it or a coach has told them to do it. And, you know, I remember, you know, a group of us from Cricket Australia went to America a few years ago, you know, 12, 13 years ago, uh, to look at other sports. And we went to the Boston Red Sox training camp, you know, spring training camp down in, in Florida. And uh, luckily there was an Australian that was head, he was the head um, uh, coach in their, in their development program. Otherwise, we mightn't have got the opportunities that we got. We were there for the best part of a week. And it happened to be in a week that they had a lot of their scouts from Central America and South America there, um, sort of, you know, at spring training. And some of these guys were new, so it was their first time at spring training. And we got to sit in on some of the meetings that these guys had. And I remember one of the questions that was asked of the head scout, you know, what are you looking for? And he said, well, we're looking, you know, we're looking obviously for talent, but um, not the obvious talent. You know, we want to see the kids that, you know, watch them when they don't think they're being watched. Watch them when they're not playing. You know, we want to know who the best kids are, not only the ones that with the most talent, but kids that have got a chance, got a bit of intelligence and have got a chance to learn. You know, too many of them come here that have got talent and that's all they've got. And, you know, they haven't got enough brain power to actually learn from their experiences and the other thing that you know I, I said to this this guy one day because um, the the, um, the major league players are already gone off to their pre-season games so that it was the minor league players that were still left in camp and I said how many kids have you got on the list and he went through he said 106 I said well how many of these kids do you expect to play major league baseball and he went through and he said, him, 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 him. Six kids he had out of 106. And I said, wow, that's a lot of money to spend for those six kids. He said, but yeah, we've got to provide games for those kids. 
where they learn the things that will take them to the next level. We can't teach them that stuff. Um, and he said, whatever you do, don't tell the other 100 kids that they've got no chance. But, you know, um, you know this, this is, that's basically it. And that didn't surprise me at all because, I mean, that's what you see. But I said, well, okay, what's, you, what's your philosophy on coaching? He said, no, no, we don't coach. He said, we don't, you know, if, if one of the minor league coaches sees a player that he thinks needs some, something done with him, he's got to come back to us at the, the main coaching panel and tell us what he sees and what he needs done. We then go down and have a look at the kid and we say, yeah, that's okay, you can do that, or no, leave him alone. Because we can stuff them up more than we can help them. And we don't want to take off them the things that they brought to us. So the worst thing that can happen is somebody gets in the system who thinks they're a U-Butte coach and they can change this kid into a superstar and they absolutely stuff him up. In cricket, we do that every day. And it's not anybody's fault. I mean, I, yeah, there's a lot of good people out there who, who coach and do a terrific job. But, you know, these kids, they might have six coaches in a year. Their club coach, their state coach, you know, their, their red ball coach, their white ball coach, their 2020 coach, you know, they can be interfered with on many, many occasions. And I see it happening all the time. And as I say, nobody does it to try and mess somebody up. But the kids get so much stuff in their head that they don't know what what they're doing. And it's not just a matter of saying, mate, just forget all that and go back to doing what you were doing. They can't remember what they were doing. Once you've messed with someone's timing mechanism, it's not that easy to go back to what you were doing. Just ask Ian Baker Finch when he tried to get a bit of extra length out of his drive. Couldn't do that, but actually lost his driver altogether and he couldn't go back to doing what he was doing. You mess with someone's head, you know, you do it very, very, you don't do it lightly. You've, you've really got to think about what you're saying, what you're suggesting. Um, and, you know, I think professionalism has got a lot going for it, but it's also got some things that you've got to worry about and you've got to sort of try and minimise as much as you can. Classic case of too many cooks, isn't it? Um, Greg, uh, it's been sensational talking to you today. I've got one more for you, if I may, just before we let you go. Uh, I just wanted to go back to World Series cricket for a minute. And I, this has been an, an old chestnut probably of a lot of people. Um, the records. I mean, you made five tonnes in World Series cricket over a couple of years against the likes of Roberts, Holding, Garner, etc. Um, average 56 in those those matches. Uh do you think those records from those two years should be finally recognised in official cricket records? You would go to 29 test hundreds, which would take you to Sir Donald Bradman. And I know players don't play for records. I'm sure you didn't either. Dennis Lilly would go past 400 wickets. The standard of cricket seemed to be so so high, um, even allowing for the fact that you were playing on some horrible pitches, as you've discussed. Should those cricket records finally be recognised? Dennis Lilly and I would be very happy if they were recognised. I'm not sure there's too many other blokes that are uh, rushing to get their their uh, World Series records recognised. Um, you know, it was a it was tough. Um, it was really hard. I think you know, it was hard for the the younger blokes that were that came in. You know, the, the, um, you didn't get much space. Like you know, when I first started playing, 
you know, I'd play half a dozen club games a year. You know, you'd play half the Sheffield Shield games a year. So in between test matches, if you weren't going so well, you could go away and play a Shield game or go and, go and play a club game. Mind you, club cricket was the hardest place to make runs. You know, the, the wickets were pretty ordinary and uh, so it was... You had to work really hard to make runs in club cricket. Shield cricket was the best place to play because the bowling was a little bit less intense than test cricket. The grounds were good. The tracks were good. So, um, yeah, look, Dennis and I were mature cricketers when we went to World Series cricket. Um, uh, sure, there were others that were mature cricketers as well that that, that found it hard. But for the younger blokes, it, it was pretty tough because um, you, you didn't get any respite, you know. First year of World Series cricket, we had the West Indies and the rest of the world. But the rest of the world was also made up of the best of the West Indies. So you, you played the West Indies every every day, pretty much, in that, that first year. The second year, they they topped up the, the rest of the world a bit more so that they had three distinct teams and the West Indians didn't go and play with the, the rest of the world. But the first year when we were playing on all the you know dud tracks, you copped those West Indian bowlers every day. And I mean... The, the, the beauty of it, I had developed a routine. I had developed my process of concentration by the time I got to that time of playing World Series cricket. So as I described earlier about the, you know, the doormat and the, the, um, the danger zone, you know, if you couldn't make runs off their less than good balls, you couldn't make runs uh, because they didn't bowl any ranked bad balls. So, you know, there was a ball with your name on it coming pretty soon. You had to get some runs while you were there. The other thing was that the West Indies worked out, Clive Lloyd worked out that not only did he have a weapon of four fast bowlers who could bowl any number of bounces and over that they wanted because there was no restriction. If he limited the number of overs that were bowled in the day, that was another weapon. So they were bowling 12 overs an hour and they were bowling four bounces and over. So with the best will in the world, you couldn't score quickly because as a batsman, you might get 50%. So they'd bowl 12 overs an hour. So if you were getting 50%, you'd get six overs an hour. Four of them were bouncers and over that were going past your ears. So you couldn't score off them very often. So you were getting about three overs an hour to score from. If you got caught up with the scoreboard and the rate of, runs that you were getting, you'd drive yourself nuts. So I didn't look at the scoreboard. I, you know, I played my innings one ball at a time and I only had to deal with one ball at a time. And that way, you know, you could sort of survive because you knew that if you were going to make runs against the West Indians, you had to be here all day because they were going to bowl 72 overs in their hour. You know, you, you get... Um, I think in the day, you know, on average, you'd get about 12 boundaries in 100, 12 or 13 boundaries you might in 100. The rest of them you had to get in ones, twos and, and threes. So you weren't getting a lot of boundaries off the West Indies either. So you, you, the, the, the pressure on you as a batsman was enormous. And, um, you know, luckily I had a mature process by that stage. You know, for the younger guys still learning the game, it must have been a nightmare. And it would have been a nightmare because a lot of them, I'm sure, you know, I went through that period without, you know, where I didn't make many runs and walked off the ground a couple of times and, you know, thought I hadn't seen the ball. I think a lot of blokes go through their whole career and 
and have that experience. That they're only picking the ball up halfway down. But if you were only picking the ball up halfway down against the West Indian, but you weren't making runs. So I don't think too many people want their records uh, recognised because it, um, you know, it's not a pretty, pretty sight for a, for a lot of lot of the guys, and that's just the way it was. And I think, you know, some careers were absolutely ruined by World Series cricket. You know, even Rod Marsh, who was a you know experienced cricketer, and was maturing into a really good wicketkeeper batsman, he was never quite the same batsman after the West Indies. You know. Um, uh, because they just terrorise us, you know. They bowled, you know, four bounces and over. And as I said to uh, one of the umpires one day, actually um, here in in Adelaide, uh, the day I had my hand broken, um, you know, he was a um, very experienced umpire, and um, I I faced Colin Croft, who was bowling, you know, four five bounces and over when I came into bat in, in that Test match in Adelaide. And I went down, you know, I got a single, went down the other end and I said to the umpire, and I won't mention his name because it's not fair, I mean, he, it wasn't his fault. Um, I just said to him, mate, when are you going to give us a hand here? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, but, you know, they can run in and bowl four bounces and over. I mean, anyone, give them four range finders, they're going to bowl a good one sooner or later. You know, the first one might go over your right shoulder, the second one might go over your left shoulder. But you can guarantee by the third one, it's going to be right in front of your face. And I, it was obviously very precise because the next over, Crofty bowled me one over this side, one over that side, and then he got hit me in the hand in front of my face and it went down the fine leg and I got a single and um, I, I must admit I wasn't very happy. I, I think the only thing I can um, be grateful for is I didn't swear at him, but I did say, I hope you're happy because the big bugger's just broken my hand. And, um, you know, that, that was what you um, contended with. I mean, Bruce Laird opened the batting in World Series cricket. And, I mean, he became known as Bruised Laird because he had bruises from, you know, the, from his ankles to his, um, to his shoulders. And Bruce got one of the best hundreds I've ever seen in Trinidad on the tour of the West Indies in 79 against the best the West Indians could produce on a very ordinary wicket that was as close to an, an MCG wicket of the day in that it was up and down. And Bruce got hit from, you know, the roof of his mouth to the soles of his feet. We, we got sent in on a wet wicket and um, Bruce got through it and I don't know how he got through it. And he got 100 out of, wouldn't have been any more than 200. And he came in, you know, he got out and um, in the lunch or afternoon tea break it might have been, Viv Richards came in, walked off the field, you know, came from fielding and walked to our dressing room first and shook Bruce's hand and said, I would be proud to play in innings like that. I mean, it was the most brutal, you know, bowling that anyone's ever had to face. And, you know, Bruce will never be recognised for what was probably the best 100 I ever saw in the conditions. And, um, you know... He gets no recognition for it. He played a little bit of test cricket, but some of those guys didn't play any test cricket after. You know, um, Martin Kent was a very good cricketer and got Martin got 100 in the second innings of that test match and, you know, will never be recognised as the, the, the cricketer he was. But uh, as I say, I don't think too many people are rushing to get those uh, records recognised. Well, we'll um, 
Fascinating answer, that, and uh, not the one I was expecting, but uh, some great um, context there, Greg. And um, and uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely amazing talking to you. Thanks, too, to Warren Treadray. Uh, and if you'd like to um, keep hearing more from The Big Deal, please subscribe to us at thebigdeal.au. Send Treaders any questions you've got, and we'll address them uh, in our podcasts. And uh, keep looking out every week for our newsletter with the latest on the big world of business and sport. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Greg, mate. Thanks, Thanks Greg. Appreciate it, mate. I think we were aiming to talk to you for about 40 minutes and somehow we've just ticked over the two-hour mark. So I, I hope we haven't kept you from anything too important, but it's been fantastic talking to you. No, no, it's, it's too uh, too windy out there for golf, so I'm <laughs> not, uh, not missing anything. Jeez, you wouldn't want to be playing today. No, it's, it's uh, blowing a gale here. We've got so many of these bloody pine needles that have, down there everywhere there uh, yeah so it's been blown to go down here on the coast so we're uh, uh, no hunkered down and i've got a little bit of writing to do but other than that uh, nothing to do but i hope you you know i hope you can use no it'd be brilliant mate use that mate brilliant we'll we'll run the whole lot and we'll we'll run it over two or three parts so uh it's just fantastic stuff mate thank you mate all right man. thanks boys hey uh, and just a heads up when you go out it takes about once you hit out it will take about five seconds or ten seconds just to double up and load so we're all thank you mate all the best mate thanks before you go don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals breaking sports biz news as it happens and much more join me at www.thebigdeal.au